Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present. We're going to talk about one of the biggest, I believe, one of the biggest issues that we all face from time to time, and that is sleep and and how to make it work for all of us. And we've got a great uh, ambassador for sleep, if you will. She, her name is Andrea Moore, and uh, she is from our neighbors to the north um, in Canada. And uh, we want to welcome Andrea to the show. How are you, my dear? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Very cool. Now, you became a sleep coach almost out of self-defense, didn't you? Yes, absolutely. I, my second child is the reason I do what I do. <laughs> Tell us about uh, the poor, the, the, the second child and the issues that uh, he or she had. Absolutely. So he had a rough beginning. He fractured his clavicle in birth. He had a tongue tie that went undiagnosed. He had severe reflux. He cried almost every waking moment uh, for the first five-ish months of his life. And he also woke up every 20 to 40 minutes all night long. He needed to sleep on me, right on my chest. And I remember going to see a family doctor around five months. And this is just when he stopped crying every waking moment. And she said, okay, well, once he's six months, you can just let him cry. It's like, are you, are you kidding me? It took us five months to get this baby to stop crying. I'm still traumatized from the first five months of, of crying. I go into a panic attack hearing somebody else's baby cry. Uh, but uh, so we intuitively knew letting him cry wasn't the right solution for us. But that's still often the prevailing advice. If you if you want them to sleep, you close the door, walk away and let them cry. And that intuitively wasn't a fit. My background's in psychology, so it, it didn't make sense. The, the first couple of years of life are so important for building and protecting attachment. And we do that by responding, not by walking away and saying, hey, good luck, figure it out. I remember when our, our oldest son, now this goes back, he's 34 today. So this goes back 34 years. And that's exactly the advice that our pediatrician gave us because we would say, you know, well, we, you know, we put him down in his bed and he starts to cry. And the pediatrician said, well, um, you need to let him cry it out. And that was what my parents told me as well. And her parents told her as well, let him cry it out. So <laughs> we would close the door and he would be crying and we'd be shivering and shaking in the next room going, are we doing the right thing? That sounds horrible in there. That, that he's you know that he feels abandoned and all that kind of stuff so so i'm i'm with you there's got to be a better way well absolutely there are ways to support our little ones in their emotions we can still set boundaries but we can still respond to them and responding isn't always about fixing but it is important to be there for them through some of the bigger and more uncomfortable emotions so how did he break his clavicle when during the birth process? Was it just, just, just one of those things? The so he was a, a VBAC, uh, so vaginal birth after cesarean, and the doctors were a little over worried um, about 
he wasn't turning. Um, I'd only been pushing for a couple of minutes. They threatened forceps. I heard C-section. I'm like, baby, you need to come out next push. So I had to push him out pretty quickly. And a, a doctor hooked their finger under his armpit to help pull him out because his shoulders got a little stuck and he fractured his clavicle in that process. I can't imagine what how that poor baby must have felt. It's like, here I am getting birth into a brand new place, and not only is it cold and and it's bright, and there's I'm and now I my shoulder hurts or my clavicle hurts at the same time. How long did it take for the clavicle to heal? They said it takes about a month for it to heal, and there wasn't really anything we could do about it. Just breastfeeding in certain positions and. Um, it, it would heal up on its own, but it does make me wonder how much that might have shaped his brain development because sensory development is one of the earlier pieces of brain development that happens. And if we're not exposed to the color yellow in the first month of life, our brain's going to develop differently. So I wonder, because he had this pain to process how that might have impacted him longer term. So he, he's since been diagnosed autistic, and that was part of the sleep challenges that we faced. Uh, a lot of babies have sleep challenges, and then neurodiverse children can, uh, they can have a whole different set of sleep challenges or challenges that are harder to resolve. Now, you said that if you don't, if the, if the baby doesn't see the color yellow, describe what you mean by that. I'm not quite sure. So the brain develops in layers and there are certain pieces that we need for the next piece to grow on top of. So that's like the building of attachment in the first couple of years of life and having those secure roots and secure attachment to our caregivers that gives us the confidence to go out and explore the world. If we don't have that secure base or that solid attachment, we can develop a lot of anxieties and fears and things that come out in different forms later in life because that initial piece of brain development or brain architecture wasn't strong or wasn't there. I wish that they would teach that to uh, prospective parents when they're about ready to have a, a baby because, you know, we don't do a lot of that sort of thing to develop their brain um, in the first parts of life, we tend to think that they're just kind of this thing that, <laughs> you know, that, that, that they'll figure it out. Just, you know, just feed them and put them to bed and feed them and change their diaper and put them to bed and they'll be fine. Yeah. There's, they're starting to offer more of this, but there's still a lot of generational advice passed down that may or may not be rooted in any kind of, truth or research and now that we have this information when we know better we do better that's that is so true let's say that is really cool that you are out there getting this information out by the way if you want to go to her website and you can find out all the information that you need to about her it's blissfulnights.ca because she's up north in our in our friends in canada uh, are you in vancouver no, I am in Calgary, well, just outside Calgary, Alberta. Oh, is it snow on the ground? We have a little bit of snow, but we're hitting plus nine this weekend. So oh, that's that's good. It's beautiful over in the middle of a Chinook. 
Ah, very nice. That's easy. Yeah. So, so now how long have you been doing this since, since you, how, and how old is your uh, middle child now? My middle guy is eight and a half. And so I've been doing this just about eight years. Oh, wow. Now you said that my, now my granddaughter who's four has been diagnosed as being quote unquote on the spectrum, which I'm not even quite sure what that means. Can you kind of give us an idea of what being on the spectrum or having autism means for uh, a child as they grow up? Absolutely. So the autism spectrum, it's a very wide spectrum, but it's clusters of traits um, that fall under this umbrella. So we're all on a sensitivity spectrum. And that's one piece that I've noticed. uh, All of my kids are diagnosed autistic. And that's one piece that I've definitely noticed with them is they have difficulty with sensory processing or the integration of sensory information. We all are constantly bombarded with sensory input. So what we feel, how our body is moving, what we're uh, hearing, seeing, tasting, smelling. Some of us have more filters to filter some of that out than others. Um, my kids especially have very porous filters. So a lot of that comes through. So walking into a bright room with a lot of noise, a lot going on can be absolutely overwhelming for them. They aren't able to regulate because it's harder with all of that information coming at them. With my middle guy, he also struggled with Um, behavioral regulation. um, That was very kind of behind the curve. We had some bigger behaviors. uh, There were higher levels of sensory seeking behaviors in terms of he would, um, he would hit his head like against a crib or against a wall when he was feeling something uncomfortable. And that could be overwhelmed, overstimulated from the environment. So some kids who are on the autism spectrum would go to more of those extreme behaviors like the head banging, some will pull their hair out. If you imagine when you stub your toe, if you pinch your arm, it kind of takes your your mind off the sensation or the pain coming from your toe. So little ones, when they're feeling tired, that's not a fun feeling to be tired. The root emotion of tired is frustration. So some, when they're tired, they start to use some of these sensory seeking behaviors of head banging or uh, some will pinch themselves when they'll pull their hair out. So that's one example of a higher extreme that kids on the spectrum might go to when they're feeling tired or overtired. Well, and, and I got to tell you my granddaughter um, now they're, they're in London now because they, he's in the military. Yeah. But they tell me that she doesn't sleep at night on a regular basis that that she'll take a nap and then she will be up until one o'clock two o'clock in the morning before she'll fall asleep naturally and then get up at uh, seven o'clock in the morning to go uh because she's got school at eight and stuff like that so is that normal if some if there's a child that's a little bit on the spectrum i wouldn't say normal i would i would say that it that's a normal challenge but not really where we want to be. And I'm guessing that more sleep is probably needed, but because of the, uh, sometimes we can get stuck in patterns that don't work very well, where 
a child has a bad night and then they nap because they're, they're not going to make it through the day. And sometimes we let them nap because when they become overtired, they don't regulate well at all. And I remember back to some of the meltdowns my son would, would have. I would do almost anything to avoid them because it was hard for me to regulate through them. Yeah, that's exactly true. And that's exactly what happens with them. It's it's like, don't rock the boat. She's asleep. And so, you know, let's just let her sleep. But then she sleeps and then she wakes up and then she's not ready for bed when it's time to go to bed. Right. And what one of the key components to falling asleep is we need to build up a peak amount of sleep pressure. So there's a chemical called adenosine that builds up in our body during our wakeful hours. And when we sleep, it releases some of that chemical. So in a nap, if it's a child who doesn't need a nap anymore, and some do still need to nap at the age of four, but it's often a shorter nap, might be half hour. If we go beyond that, we're releasing more of that chemical, more of the sleep pressure, which makes it harder to fall asleep at bedtime. And in the evening hours, we want the peak levels of melatonin to line up with the the peak level of sleep pressure. If we release too much sleep pressure in the afternoon, okay, well now we've got melatonin, but we haven't reached that peak level of sleep pressure until midnight. And then we lead to another kind of rough night. Now, my, my son tells me that um, some kids on the spectrum don't release melatonin the way that a normal, whatever normal means, I can't even tell you, uh, but uh they don't release melatonin like like some other people do. Have you found that to be true of, of your kids or kids that are on the spectrum? So I don't, uh, like, I'm, I'm not a researcher myself, but there has been research suggesting that some autistic individuals do not produce the same levels of melatonin as their neurotypical peers. And I have noticed with my own kids, especially my middle guy, he's, uh, my greatest teacher in life, <laughs> whatever I do with the families that I work with would often, I'd see results within several nights to a week of making a change. We would start to see improvements with my middle guy. We would have to stay solid, trying the exact same thing for like a month and a half, sometimes two months before we would see it really start to work. And with him under the guidance of a pediatrician, we have had to do some trials of melatonin where we would use it before bedtime for two to three weeks while we're resetting his body, getting his body trained to fall asleep around a certain time. Because that's the other thing, our body can get used to being awake at certain times. So if we can use melatonin as a short-term tool to get the body kicking in again and retraining it to sleep at an earlier time it can also increase the drowsiness which can decrease some of the challenging behaviors that we can see at bedtime a lot of it's um well with my middle guy we would get a lot of meltdowns around sleep time and he could fight for two to four hours um the process of going to sleep holy moses that must have been really a challenge for you I would agree and why I do what I do. <laughs> well, and let, let's talk about that because it's, it's important because a lot of people and my son and, and daughter-in-law included, they are beside themselves because they don't know, they know they got a problem. They know it's not going to work the way it's working now, 
but they don't know how to fix it. If somebody comes to you to work with you, how does it work for them? Yeah. So usually what I do first is they fill out a history form. It gives me just more of an idea of the challenge that they're facing, what they've tried, their child's age, sleep environment, routine. Sleep is never solely a sleep problem. By the age of four, a child knows how to fall asleep. There's usually something else there. Resistance, maybe it's sleep environment. That's an easier fix for Autistic children, we need to be even more aware of setting up the ideal sleep environment because any light filtering through a window or from a nightlight, any white or blue light especially can filter right through our eyelids, tell our bodies, hey, it's time to be awake, don't produce as much melatonin. With an autistic child who is having exceptional struggles or challenges in the sleep department, we don't want to add to that at all. So they often need complete darkness Routine is hugely, hugely helpful for them to know what comes next. The other important thing to understand about uh, the first few years of life, so especially in the toddler stage, but also in the preschooler stage, is these little humans live in a state of counter will. So if you imagine you're standing in line at a grocery store and the person behind you in line started pushing their cart against you, what's your instinct? push back. Exactly. So toddlers and preschoolers live in that state. If we ask them to do something and they don't love it, they're going to resist, push back. Don't like that. They love to say the word no. They hate to hear the word no. So there are a lot of things that we can do to help reduce that counter will or that automatic pushback because we, when we add in that stage of development, which is a very egocentric stage of development, I want the world to work for me. I'm going to fight anything that doesn't work my way. We really want to reduce that counter will because when we combine it with sleep pressure, we're feeling tired and kind of cranky. We really have a recipe for a lot of struggles. And when we have struggles during the bedtime routine, now a child's not feeling connected to their favorite humans on the planet right before they're facing an 11 to 12 hour separation from them. Oh, wow. So we want bedtime to be peaceful. We want it to be connected. We want them to know what to expect. We want to reduce counter will. Sometimes using a bedtime routine chart. So it's the pictures on the chart that say what happens next, not the parent pushing them through and saying, now we're doing this, now we're doing this. Some kids can be excited about that. Oh, you tell me what's next on your chart. They're often excited because they get to tell you what comes next. It can reduce that counter will. And if we use a timer, a lot of kids will delay every step in the routine. If we use a timer, maybe there's uh, two minutes for brushing teeth and then three minutes to get dressed. It's not the parent saying, okay, let's go. Time for the next thing. Let's move on. It's, oh, sorry. That's just what the timer says. Nothing I can do about that. So it can reduce the counter will because it's not... Uh, that battle of wills, parent to child, it's the parents kind of enforcing it, but it's something external telling the child what comes next. So I'm willing to bet that by the time somebody gets to you, they've tried a lot of stuff. And the part of your work that you get to do is to counsel the parents on how to behave and to change their behavior as well. Would that be fair? That's a huge piece of it. I would say probably the most 
important thing that I've learned in my own parenting journey is to do the work to calm and regulate my own nervous system. Our kids are so intuitive. They can pick up if we're anxious or frustrated. We could put a smile on, their, on our face, but they're going to read right through it. And it's usually on the days that we're stressed that all of a sudden all hell breaks loose and they're off the rails having the bigger behaviors if we're able to calm and regulate ourselves and at any age even with younger babies that almost always helps the um the uh, calmer our nervous system is the calmer our babies or our children's are going to be as well <laughs> I will tell you, my, my son and his wife, they have a bit of a chaotic uh, relationship and a bit of a uh, chaotic. As a matter of fact, they they bought a border collie and the border collie decided that this this was too much for him to handle. So he left um, because he wasn't he, his behavior was not indicative of a nice calming experience. And so there was a lot of um, energy and a lot of a lot of stuff that, that that the kids pick up on as well and and stuff so that it the so you almost have to train the parents on how to behave themselves in order to get the kids to behave that they the way that they want them to behave is that is that true well i mentioned my well all my kids are my teachers especially my middle guy but i think our kids come here to teach us a lot like, oh, you could be more patient. I'm going to push this button until you rise to that challenge. <laughs> and uh, it, it's I, I, this is the work in life. Like, how do we improve to provide our kids with a safe space to feel emotions? So children, young children and babies, they don't self-soothe or self-regulate. They co-regulate. So that means they're only able to regulate when an adult is present and in a calm regulated space. So with motor skills, we don't teach a baby how to roll over. We don't teach them how to crawl. We don't say, okay, balance like this and then put this arm forward. We don't do any of that. Those skills are within them. We provide a safe space for that for those skills to emerge. We don't put them down on concrete. We put them on a very padded floor. We stay nearby and we give them tummy time and opportunity to practice. So that's how we give space for motor skills to emerge. Emotional regulation is similar. And that's where the idea that six months, you can just let them cry. That, that goes based on the premise that at six months, all of a sudden emotional regulation is in place. Emotional regulation is a lifelong process how many adults do you know that have not yet fully mastered emotional regulation? Yeah, I think that's all of us. So for little ones, uh, with the development of emotional regulation, what the best thing that we can do for them is give them a safe space. We don't teach them, this is frustrated, this is mad, this is sad, this is, let's do some deep breathing. We can name those emotions, but the emotions come up within their bodies. The safe space that we can offer is our presence when we're able to stay as calm, loving, and non-reactive as possible. You know, I, I was um, thinking as you were talking about it, trying to figure out a way for my son to figure out how to make his um, his his family situation work a little bit better. And does it work if you 
like you you mentioned that that a for some of the kids they really need to have a dark room that that's completely dark and there's no light there's no stimulation coming in from anywhere else does it help if if the mom or the dad sit with the child in the bed in the dark room and just kind of be there with them does that help them uh, figure out how to go to sleep a little bit better and they get more relaxed so usually as a starting point with a child who's struggling i always start with in-room coaching because part of what they're fighting is the separation they're facing from their parents who are their favorite humans on the planet what child's going to sign up for that which by, the, which, by the way, I, I wanted to mention that that my son was complaining because she won't go to sleep without him being on the bed. And, and that's the latest phase that they're in. And that's because she loves him to death. Yeah. And, and this is where we can also find that middle zone of, of making sure that it's the parents calling the shots and making the rules and the big decisions instead of a child putting themselves into that alpha role or... I'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to do it. Uh, and sometimes we do cave because especially by four years in, we're tired at this point and they're fighting us at a time of day that we're tired too. Nobody emotionally regulates as well when we're tired. So as a starting point, and, and if a light's already in the room, if some kids do reach an age where their fears or they just really do better with a nightlight. If it has a red glow to it, that's, not likely to impact negatively impact melatonin production. So back in the caveman days, we used to sit around fires, the sun would be setting. So red or like a Himalayan salt lamp nightlight, that kind of nightlight would be the best choice if a child just needs something. And then I would usually offer parental presence to start, but if the child's insistent, no, you need to lay in bed, we're gonna negotiate. No, I'm gonna sit in a chair and they might get really angry about that, but it's okay for them to face those feelings of frustration and futility that arise when we don't get our way and they can learn, oh, okay, I tried everything I could think of to change that. Dad's still sitting in the chair. Okay, well, I like having him close. I'm kind of tired. Okay, I'm just going to go to sleep. So that would be step one. We're just setting a boundary that we're going to do it this way and you're okay with a little bit of space. And then we're going to increase the space from that point out and at the age of four we really want to focus on the positives so sometimes introducing that bedtime chart kids think it's really cool wow i get this all these pictures i get to tell dad how i'm going to sleep and what to do next and that that's a win for them and then they get parental presence but if they're crying or fighting it, it's a quick reminder, I can only be in here if you're quiet and trying to fall asleep. If they keep pushing the boundary, we might have to walk out briefly. And as soon as they're quiet, we immediately reward the behavior we want to see. And we, we go right back to the chair. We keep our word. And they start to learn, okay, it's being quiet and trying to fall asleep that brings presence, which is a reward they naturally seek. I got to tell you, you must be... You must have the patience of Job. You must. It's amazing that 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 you could do what you do. You must be really, really patient with your kids. I'm a work in progress. I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> human, but compared to where I was at five years ago, I, I've come a long ways, and there's still a ways to go. And they test me on that every single day. 
I can only imagine that how, how, first of all, your kids are lucky to have you as their mom. Um, but because it's a challenge and it's a, I don't know what we would have done in my household. Cause my, we did not know. We had no idea how to handle any of this stuff. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that most parents don't. Well, and I think, uh, we've swung from one end of just let kids cry, don't spoil them, um, basically train them to be independent from the day they're born to almost the complete opposite end where a lot of parents are very resistant to ever letting their kids cry. And that's not healthy either. There's always a middle zone and feeling tired, mad, sad, frustrated, those things are going to happen in everyday life. And little ones, especially before they have much verbal development, they express a lot of those emotions through some tears. And those kinds of tears are what we would call tension release crying. When we release tears of stress or frustration, tired, mad, sad, there are toxins released in our tears. There are stress hormones released. We get a boost of oxytocin after. It's a healthy emotional release. If we don't let that out. Oh, I have to go to the grocery store. I don't want mascara running down my face. I'll deal with that later. Stuff it down. Not appropriate to feel it right now. And then, I don't know, hours later, a partner comes in the room, breathes too loudly, and it all comes out somewhere. <laughs> and he's like, what did I do? I just got here. Exactly. So it, it's healthy to let those emotions out, even the uncomfortable ones. So this is where, as a parent, we offer support but we don't need to jump in and fix or take away the experience of these uncomfortable emotions because are we really preparing them for other kids stealing their toy or not being nice to them or, or whatever they don't get their way part of our job as parents is to give them a space to practice dealing with uncomfortable feelings too and that's by offering again that our presence staying as non-reactive as possible when they go through some of the big emotions now, just out of curiosity, again, I'm, I'm using my granddaughter as a as an example here because she goes to preschool and she goes from eight till noon, and the teachers tell them that she's a perfect kid. She does everything, and she's a real good kid at school. And then uh, when they pick her up, all hell breaks loose. Um, is that because of their parenting style up till this point, or that they're not? Uh, they they haven't touched the right buttons or would you need to like uh, be with them for like a week or two to figure any of this stuff out? No, that they sound exactly like, or exactly like my children, how they come home from school. They, they're these perfect little angels. A lot of the time at school, it's some challenges, but I would love to meet these children who go off to school because they are not the kids that I have at home. <laughs> so I would say congratulations. Um, they've likely done an incredible job of building attachment and provided that safe space where their little one feels safe enough to come home and let out all the big feelings. So they go to school and the teachers there can become familiar, but they're not as safe as mom and dad. Right. And they regulate all day. They have to share with other kids. They have to filter out all the noise, all the information coming at them, the, the nonstop stimulation. And then they come home and it's their safe space to unload and all of those big emotions all of a sudden just come pouring out. So 
I would say they should give themselves a pat on the back if they've created a safe space for all those big emotions. One of the, the rewards of parenting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and really the, the same is true no matter how old you are. Cause you know, if you have a really bad day at work and you're not allowed to show that you're having a bad day at work and you, and you can't throw things on the job and, and really have, so what happens is you come home and you kick the dog and then you yell at the wife and then, and, or whatever it is, or if you start crying or because it's a safe place for you to now uh, let out the emotions that have been pent up on you with you all day. Absolutely. Like what if we, let ourselves cry on the way home or scream in the car or, you know, go outside and just take a few minutes in, in nature or just do some deep breathing or whatever we need to do, go to the gym, um, whatever we need to do to keep ourselves in a zone where we're able to regulate. Okay. Now I've got what it takes to handle what my kids are going to throw at me. Yes. Yeah, indeed. And they, and they will, and they will test you. Um, and if they, if they can do it. So you are, um, you're a trained psychologist. Is that right? Uh, no. So my, uh, my, my bachelor of arts degree is in communication and culture with a minor in psychology. So oh, I okay. worked in psychology, social work, mental health for about a decade before, uh, branching out into pediatric sleep. Ah, very good. And is that a study that a lot of people are doing, I haven't heard of it before. So maybe in Canada it is more so than it is here, or are you kind of unique in what you are developing? It's actually kind of become more of a parenting trend these days to hire a sleep coach or a sleep consultant. When I started, there were about four or five local consultants. And now even within Calgary, I'd guess there are 75 plus um, there are it, it's tricky though there are a number of different certification bodies so some you do a weekend of training and some you do a few months worth some you need to have like a bachelor degree some you don't need any previous education to do it and it's not a regulated field so you're not going to get the same advice from various professionals in the field now just as um i would tend to believe that someone who had months of training versus a weekend course where they get a certificate on sunday at, at five o'clock uh that that it would be better to have months of training rather than a few days uh am, am i correct in that i would agree and infant mental health is such an important part of this where working with babies and young children in very vulnerable period of development. So we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to protect and build attachment. Uh, that's important for lifelong development. And that's why I go through with all of the families that I work with, we talk a lot about the different types of crying. So that tension release crying, which is a healthy emotional release. But what does that look like? What kind of body language accompanies that crying versus tension increased crying, it, which is when a little one has gone beyond their own ability to regulate or bring themselves back to calm. Now they're possibly distressed or overwhelmed. The body's stress response is activated. That's fight, flight, or freeze. That's survival mode. We don't learn from that space. So that's not productive with coaching. And we talk about what that looks like, because if parents can 
look at their little one and say, okay, like I'm seeing some crying and I'm seeing them moving, thumping their legs and moving their bodies and bringing their hands into their midline. I know that's frustrated and tired. Okay, well, yeah, it's bedtime and I've changed things up a little bit. That makes sense. I know I can offer support and comfort. I don't need to intervene. There's no danger happening in this moment. Do you find that uh, you have better results with older parents um, or do young parents in their early 20s, do they get it as well? I find the parents that seek me out are looking for non-cry it out methods. So the parents that seek me out, I have success with because they're not looking for just leave your baby alone to cry. They want to understand the types of crying. They want to support their little one developmentally. They they want to learn. Uh, they want to learn kind of what I know um, to be able to support their little one through sleep and through any bumps that might come up down the road. So that and that generally takes somebody who's been around the block a couple of times. Not when you're, necessarily. Really? Okay. I'm finding a lot of parents are seeking alternatives to cry it out. And it's, it's not just based on age. So I, there's a shift from the old, just let them cry. There's a lot more knowledge now that there are other ways to do this. And just within my Facebook sleep group, I hovered around 800 members for the first probably four or five years. And then it's blossomed to almost 26,000 members seeking out non-cried out kind of methods of support. And is that because they think the outcome is better than just letting them sit there and cry? Well, and we also have a lot more research showing the importance of building and developing attachment. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's, and that's, that's a really important thing is, is for your kids to feel like they they are attached to you and rather than they're rather than being abandoned um, because um, you we're just going to put them in bed and just shut the door and, and be done with it. And then, then they cry, at least it was my experience that my kids would cry until they got tired of, and they weren't going to get the response that they were looking for. And they, and they finally get tired and just fall asleep. Well, and not all little ones are going into any toxic stress zone with Crido. It does depend on temperament, stage of development, the type of body language that they're showing, but we really need parents to know what these emotions look like and what this expression looks like so that they know when to offer a higher level of support. Why don't they teach this prior to the child being born that there is, there's some things that they can do or do they, I don't know. It's been a long time. Minimal. Uh, a lot of the build I used to work as a doula as well. And a lot of the prep is okay. Here's what you do for labor. Here's what you do for birth. Uh, there's very little prep and practice and knowledge that goes into postpartum. And I think that that really needs to shift on, this is realistic. Newborns are not supposed to sleep eight to 12 hour stretches. They're supposed to wake frequently. Here are sleep signs and age appropriate wake windows. Um, there's a lot that we can do to help with sleep. We just need to empower parents with education and knowledge. Now, I know part of your journey was that uh, you had postpartum depression uh, for, I, did you have it all three times? I had it after my second two. Ah, what's that? I, I, you know, we hear the term postpartum depression 
But what is it? What does it feel like? Oh, it's, I remember looking back on a video. My middle guy was eight days old and postpartum depression kicked in very early with him. And I was bathing him and I was so checked out, partly from all the crying. I was just, he's in the little baby bathtub and he's screaming, which he did every waking moment. And I'm going through the motions and just almost robotically bathing him and looking back. If I see that video, I'm, I'm pick up your baby, pick up your baby. But I was so exhausted and detached that I just, I couldn't do it. Um, a lot of it was extreme irritability or just feeling ragey, angry over things that didn't make sense. My kid's dad dared to make a grilled cheese the wrong way once. And <laughs> Yeah, it, it made me so over the top mad because I was so depleted with sleep and resources and it just took the tiniest thing to set off like a bonfire. So how do you make the grilled cheese wrong? How do you, do you make a grilled cheese wrong? <laughs> well, you, you're supposed to butter it before you put it in the pan. He put half of it in and he's still buttering it outside the pan and then Doing it that way, it's not going to melt right. It's not going to grill correctly if you if you don't put the butter on the outside of the bread before you put it in the pan. It's not going to grill correctly, and it's going to be a lousy sandwich. Exactly, and I cared very deeply about how his sandwich turned out for him. Apparently, (laughs) nothing was me. I could have left the room and taken a deep breath, but yeah, we we hit those points where it's not even rational. And we know in the moment, like, this doesn't matter. But, yeah, it's um, it almost felt like someone else was inside my body who was just so angry. And looking back, I was in such a state of depletion. And my own needs were absolutely not being met because the demands of my kids were so overwhelming. And I think a lot of the messaging we're given as parents, too, is to well, you're a parent, you signed up for this. So sacrifice your own needs for the benefit of your children. And and that's really not what's in their best interest. If we're underwater, guess what? The whole ship's going down. We do need to do what we need to do to keep our heads above water. And if that means prioritize sleep, even if we might feel guilty about it, there's still a lot of guilt or shame around sleep training because sleep training implies leaving them to cry. But we do know the impact of uh, postpartum depression and anxiety on the development of little ones. It, it does have a negative impact. We really need to support parents in their mental, physical, emotional well-being, And that is what's best for the entire family, baby included. Well, and, and even though a baby is a baby, they still can feel the energy and the emotions behind the energy. Absolutely. The most challenging children I've ever, or cases that I've ever seen with sleep have been children of parents who have extreme postpartum anxiety um, or depression, because it's that much harder to regulate. And with our own children, we do get a natural physiological anxiety response when they cry. But for little ones who cry more, maybe they're highly sensitive, sensory processing disorder, autism, reflux in the first few months, any other injuries or illnesses, our nerves can be pretty frayed. And we get to a certain age where that anxiety response still happens within our body. 
And that's there for the survival of the species. If we didn't have that anxiety response, we'd say, okay, well, I'll let the mountain lion come and eat this one. I'll have another one down the road. We don't live like that anymore, but that biology is still in us. Meanwhile, it's just a tired baby and maybe the baby's in our arms wanting to nurse to sleep and we're just so done, we're going to try to rock them. They might act like it's the worst thing that's ever happened in their lives. It's okay to rock that baby to sleep, even that's if they want to be nursed. Absolutely. If somebody wants to contact you, if they've got a problem or they just want to, you know, figure out a different way. Uh, which uh, I, from what you're telling me, a lot of parents are deciding that what they've been told isn't necessarily the best way and they don't want to do that. They want to do it a different way. How does somebody contact you? They're welcome to reach out by email to Andrea at blissfulnights.ca. They can find me at my website, blissfulnights.ca. I also have a public Facebook group, Gentle Sleep Solutions for Babies and Children. And my goal is to get this education and information out there to parents. So I do lots of live videos within that group as well. Congratulations on what you're doing. I think, I think that this is going to be very helpful to a lot of people because, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're tired and your stress level is high and it, the baby is crying and will not shut up and no, no matter what you do, it just what there, there can be, some real negative consequences to that and and people that that they do they harm other people because of that and and so it's great that you are helping people to kind of put it all together absolutely i, I love what i do well that's good and you look like you do and you look very patient right now so well, i'm well rested now <laughs> Well, that's, that's really good. And uh, now does the, when you were having postpartum depression, was your husband aware of it? Was he able to help out? And, and the man sometimes stays away or doesn't feel like they're as responsible. Um, do you coach them to work together as a team to get this done? Yeah. So my, my kid's dad was, he did everything that he could just support me and support the kids. But with three neurodiverse kids, I also found out partway through that process, I had Lyme disease. I was healing from a car accident. I had been in when I was pregnant with my first, there, there was a lot going on. Um, he, he tried the most that he could, but he, he also worked full time. So a lot of it did fall onto me. When I work with families, I look at their, their individual circumstances, but ideally both parents would be involved. Uh, I don't do any kind of blame on this person's wrong, this person's right. It's we're moving forward in this direction. What we want babies to learn is, oh, I can fall asleep for mom. I can fall asleep for dad. They do the same thing. We can swap babysitter, other caregivers in. They know how to fall asleep because they know what to do with that feeling of being drowsy. It's not dependent on one parent. And that allows each parents to give each other breaks. I'm a firm believer that what we need, at least in this country, and I'm not sure about Canada, but what we need is a class given to um, a married couple prior to uh, when the little stick turns blue. 
so that they understand what they're getting themselves into before they actually get into the process of being in it. Does that make sense? It, it does. I don't know if there's any way to prepare for being in that until we're in it. That, it there is, is no, yeah. It, we can educate ourselves, but some of the hormonal crashes and the sleep deprivation, we've experienced the odd bad night that we probably did to ourselves before, but night after night where it's not even our choice if we get to sleep, like none of us would practice that ahead of time to see what it feels like because <laughs> it, it sounds like torture. Yeah, and uh, I would venture against that a lot of kids, a lot of people would not necessarily have kids if they got to see what it was really going to be like for the first year, maybe two, maybe three. Um, and, and, and I did, did want to ask you one more thing that, that has nothing to do with sleep. And that has to do with um, the, my, my granddaughter has got a problem with using the toilet because I don't know what we, you're nodding. So that is something that, uh, that you, you're, that is not abnormal for an autistic child. It, so potty training with my middle guy was a two year process that I still feel, <laughs> I still have flashbacks to it almost. It's, um, it, part of it was the resistance or the, the counter will. So it's natural for little ones to experience, live in that state of counter will at that age. With autistic children, they might exhibit that times 10. So when they're being told what to do, they're going to fight back. And it's a different sensory experience experience of going to the bathroom. Some really don't like the sensations. It's also change, which can be changes unsettling to any humans. But I know my kids do really well. They need to know what's coming next, what to expect. So any deviations from the regular routine is exceptionally challenging. So going from a pull-up, which had reached a level of comfort, to having to do it in this toilet where there's just the hole I sit in. What if I fall in? Like, is it, is, am I going to go down there? It, it's just, it's a bigger change than what we would think. We, uh, what we did one weekend, we did a big potty party. So we bought like the sparkling juices and just, we did a whole balloon arch and just made it really exciting. So this is going to be a fun thing. And we just rewarded every single time we had the win. And I remember we were so excited about this, like, this has got to work. I think he was about five at the time. We'd been trying for a year of failed attempt after failed attempt. And he went the first time. We made a big deal out of it. We're like, okay, this is it. He did it. And then the second time he realized, oh, they want me to do this every time. And <laughs> it was a meltdown the rest of the day. So my daughter got it that day, but it still took him about another two to three months after that of consistency. We had to take the pressure off when it was us constantly setting timers and reminding him. Again, it's that counter will. I'm, I'm being told to do it over and over. So we we tried to just give space and reward if he went to the bathroom in the pull-up in the bathroom. Didn't have to be in the toilet, but you're going to go in there to do it. To just It's not in the middle of play. Sometimes transitions are hard. They don't want to leave a preferred activity to go sit on a toilet. So we just wanted to, we'll break it down to steps. Let's go to the bathroom in the bathroom. We're not going to worry about the toilet yet. So he would know there would be a reward when he did that. Sometimes it was a bit of screen time. 
Um, sometimes it was a certain toy that he'd get to pull out of a box to play with. It just took a lot of time and uh, a lot of patience and a lot of consistency. And we did get there. You're brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant. I will pass that along. It's like, and, and hopefully they will have, um, I'd never heard of such a thing. So, uh, but that's, I'd never had autistic children. So it's, you know, it's, um, at least not that I'm aware, of. <laughs> they have, but we didn't, but we didn't, uh, we didn't treat it as such. So anyway, but as, as why I want to thank you very much, Andrea Moore, for being here, go to blissfulnights.ca, get all the information you need to about her. She can work with you. She can help your, your baby sleep without the pain and agony of, of listening to them cry themselves to sleep every night for, you know, an hour and a half or two hours or whatever it takes. Uh, you can do it. You can do it differently, and and I think it's better for the kids. It's better for the parents, and uh, it can become a. <laughs> I just think it's funny, that you guys. You got let's have a a, a uh, potty party, <clears throat> and get everybody excited about going poop, um, and stuff. So congratulations! I th I think it's great. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? I don't think so. Just thank you so much for having me. I love an opportunity to have these conversations and just to even let parents know that there are alternatives. And if Cry It Out doesn't intuitively feel like the best fit, they should follow that. Exactly. And uh, blissfulnights.ca. And you can contact her from there. And you'll, you work with people all over the world, I would imagine. I do. Yeah. Australia, Bali, all over the States, Canada. I, do people in Australia, are they as different as I perceive them to be? No, not, not in terms of parenting challenges with babies who don't sleep well. That's, that's good. Well, I want to thank you for being here. It's been a joy. Would you come back? Can we do this again? Too. Definitely. Awesome. Awesome. I want to thank you again. We've been talking to, to Andrea Moore. And it's Andrea or Andrea? Andrea. Okay. And uh, blissfulnights.ca. Uh, go there. If, you have, if, if, if you're my age and you have a grandchild, contact the parents and have them call her um, because they can, they can, she can help them. And uh, if you hear from a guy by the name of Sean, that would be my son. So, um, well, I'll pass along your information and to see if if that's if he if you can help him so uh again andrew thank you from so much for being here thank you and i hope everybody has a great day and I'll hold on right where you are and i'll be right back hey thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end please give us a like and subscribe to this channel this has been a production of positivetalkradio.net please visit our website oddly named positivetalkradio.net for more details about us and our mission which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all i'm kevin mcdonald and i'm proud of these shows and i truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family so on behalf of our entire team remember be kind to one another because each other's all we got.